Joso. Uh, no. More about gel coat. When the force. Don't you call in the. More importantly. Georgia, Georgia. The whole night I just love the theme song. I like all the versions of it. Remember when they went to the the Ray Charles singing it while they yeah. all just gorgeously sat around the piano? Yeah, it, it was a weird opening, but it, it was like, okay. I mean, you know, any Ray Charles is good Ray Charles. More Ray Charles is better Ray Charles. Uh, designing women. Well, I could not think of a more apt show to do here in wonderful February of 2023, Matthew, because, uh, I don't know. We just did the Facts of Life. Bea Richards was on it, and you're the one that said, you know, Bea Richards was on Designing Women. I did say that. At which point my ears pricked up and I went, oh, this is something we can do because we have talked about Designing Women Many, many, many times. And I can't think of anything I'd rather do than get a prick up your rear. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, did I even say TV Talkaholics? This is this is it. Tutti Fruities, we're here for you. This is yet another monthly cavalcade extravaganza of talent, mayhem, and mirth. Just for you, well, exclusively for you for now, for the general public, sometime down the road at a later undisclosed time, but you get first access, aren't you lucky? So, Matthew, let's let's start talking about designing women. When I say designing women, tell me what you think. Give me a full brain dump. I think this episode. Oh, really? This to you is the quintessential I believe this is the quintessential. It's right up there, in my humble opinion. A lot of people would argue that the quintessential episode is the one where Suzanne overhears Julia telling Marjorie the night the lights went out in Georgia. A lot of people will say that's the that's the ultimate designing women. Yeah, the definitive, as it were. Yeah, like that's the one you'd show somebody. But mm -hmm. I think this episode is so delightful in every way, and it just makes my heart happy. And it's one of those, like, a, a comfortable slipper that you just put on and watch, and it, and it you get it. Yeah. All the it's, characters are exactly who they are, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm a fan of Designing Women. I always have been. As a matter of fact... Designing Women ran from 1986 to 1993. So for all intents and purposes, the Delta Burke seasons were running when I was in college. And I've said many times, my college years were not big television consumption years. But Murphy Brown and Designing Women, that was appointment television for me and mine uh, when I was in the dorms at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And I had my little 13-inch TV, which weighed 70 pounds. Yeah, this is something my friends and I were very much into. We loved any time Julia got riled up. That's the only thing that this is missing as a as a definitive episode is we don't have a moment where Julia uh, hits the the peak of her patience and then gives 
one of her big riled up speeches because those are the moments that Dixie Carter just shone so brilliantly. Do you want me to break your heart a little bit? Please do. Every time they wrote one of those for her, one of those liberal rants, as she called it, she required them to give her an episode where she could sing because she was a staunch Republican. Oh, I had heard something to that effect, now that you mention it. Kind of the way B. Arthur always said, she was not ever quite as much of a flaming liberal as Maud Finley was. And I think I do remember hearing that about Dixie Carter. Is that why she sang so much on the show? Yes. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to go on record, as I said before, this was Destination Television for us, and we watched it every week, and I continued to watch it after moving to Florida. When it went off the air, I was already down here. And then I also did catch some of it in reruns. And I have to admit, watching the show in the reruns, I didn't enjoy it as much. Getting a daily dose of this show, to me, you could start seeing some of the cracks in the writing you could start some of the seams were showing and uh, comparing it to other shows with four women in it, like your Golden Girls, like your Facts of Life and your Sex in the Cities. Uh, like you said, these characters were who they were, except the times when they weren't <laughs> in grand 80s sitcom style, when you needed Julia to be neurotic and insecure and desperately hoping that Reese is going to ask her to marry him. And he said he had a surprise. So at dinner, she's opening up all the roles, thinking there's going to be an engagement ring in there. It's like, uh, that's in season one. And I'm like, who is this woman that looks like Julia Sugarbaker that is not acting like Julia Sugarbaker? There was another episode I recall where... Gene Smart, where Charlene was having a crisis of faith, and that happened to coincide with one of the Dixie Carter singing episodes, where she was going to be singing How Great Thou Art with the Atlanta Symphony, Oh yeah, as, as you do. And she sang the fucking Sandy Patty arrangement, which is like wailing up in the stratosphere. And the night of the concert, Charlene, who has just had a, I think, disappointing talk with her pastor, she comes into the house and Julia's there. She's like, what are you doing? And Julia's like, I can't do the concert. She's like, what do you mean you're not kidding? Uh, they're, they're at the place now. She's like, the arrangement's just so that I don't think I can have the high notes. I, I just don't think I can do it. And I'm like, Julia Sugarbaker, number one, saying she's insecure and can't perform or can't sing. And number two, begging off, just not showing the fuck up to a commitment she made. I, I was gobsmacked that they did that to the character. And it made it, her a little bit more real, didn't it? But, but that's not but that's not who jo I could see any of the others doing that. I could even see Annie Potts, Mary Jo, kind of having a little bit of a breakdown. But Julia, to me, is the sort of core of the group she's the one who is sort of the the sensible one among the crazies and and there were examples i have other things floating in my brain and i'm not sure i can articulate them i don't need to it's just it's just that would just take up hours and hours of time but the series as a whole i have to say while i enjoy it 
And I think the performances are great. The character interplay can be wonderful. I found that when you look at it a little too closely, you do see a lot of the jokes are a little sweaty in the setups to get to the punchline. It does work over time to be sure to be giving commentary on modern things. Like in this episode, they they attack the natural childbirth thing while Charlene is on the delivery table. And they're talking about, you know, those women that have natural childbirth. Well, 15 minutes later, she was chewing on a belt and screaming for morphine. I have to say another episode that comes to mind, and then I'll shut up about this. It was one where Anthony and Suzanne, who were never that close in the early episodes, find common ground and go through something that they experience together. And it draws them a little closer. And it ends with her saying, Anthony, thank you so much. You know what? You're my best friend. And I swear to God, there are toddlers who weren't yet forming full sentences or words that knew the joke that was coming up, that that was a setup for him to go, gosh, Miss Daisy. Oh, <laughs> they referenced that movie because it exists. <laughs> well, sorry, the episode did not earn Suzanne saying to Anthony, you're my best friend. No, <laughs> the other three ladies are your best friends. And we know that. So I enjoy designing women. In my brain, it is not one of the great sitcoms. For the amount of time the four of them sit around talking a lot. I'm like, the Golden Girls sat around and talked a lot. And yet, in my mind, that is by far much more consistent and generally a lot funnier. Mm, Consistency is a strong word when talking about the Golden Girls. Well... Not not um, show Bible consistent, but character consistent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There are times when B. Arthur got a little neurotic. Yeah. I, vulnerable. I, yeah. I mean, I don't mind vulnerability. It's just when there's neurosis to the point of it being out of character. Another thing that I think of with the show is that Gene Smart is supposed to be kind of the 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 naive one, but there are times when Charlene is just a fucking idiot because they need her to say a stupid line to get the laugh. So there it is. Those are my critiques. And I also have some critiques of this episode, Matthew. Oh, this episode. This episode, which is, of course, season four, episode 13. I'm calling it episode 13 slash 14 because it is a two-parter when you watch it in syndication, but it was a special hour-long episode, the first day of the last decade of the entire 20th century. Yeah. And it's got a lot going on. A lot going on. I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be funny. And tomorrow. On the first day of the last century, of the last minute, of the first hour, <laughs> of the second day, of the third sun, and the 18th millisecond. And the moon is in retrograde, yeah. Of the 20th century. Like, I, I, I didn't know if that was supposed to be a joke. Like, they were making 1990 out to be a really big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I have to say, I don't think it's a joke at all. I think this episode uh, is earnest almost to a fault. 
So I think they genuinely thought to themselves, well, it's 1990. What can we say about this that makes it as special as we possibly can elevate it? Well, it's technically the last decade of the 20th century, but not the 20th, the entire 20th century. Yeah. So I don't think it's supposed to be a joke. And considering Dolly says it twice and then Charlene repeats it after that, it's just like, okay, they're they're trying to drive this point home. This New Year's is more important than other New Year's, right? We are we we all can agree to that. Okay, re- all right, good. Next, I didn't take that to be funny. There was no question in my mind that they would I be. I think you'll you'll enjoy the show more if you watch it again. Where that's supposed to be a joke. Shouldn't the audience laugh when there's a joke, though? Well, there was no audience for the Dolly Parton scene. There was a laugh track, though. Mm-mm. I'm pretty sure, weren't there? I didn't hear a single laugh. There was applause when she came out, mm-hmm. and nothing. Yeah, and it sounded like hmm. canned applause. Yeah, and they introduced her by name, just in case anyone. 32 yeah. years down the road, 33 years down the road, doesn't remember or know who Dolly Parton was. Okay, well, we've got some background shit to cover before we get to this actual episode, Matthew. Will you indulge me, my dear? I don't know that I have the choice. but You yep. do not. Designing Women ran for seven seasons, 163 episodes on CBS. And I'm taking this straight out of Wikipedia. And yes, I'm aware you're going to say, David, anyone listening to this knows what the fuck Designing Women is. Who knows? They might not. The series centers on the lives of four women and one man working together at an interior design firm in the 1980s in Atlanta, Georgia, called Sugar Baker and Associates. It originally starred Dixie Carter as Julia Sugarbaker, president of the design firm, Delta Burke as Suzanne Sugarbaker, the design firm's silent partner, and Julia's ex-beauty queen sister, Annie Potts as head designer Mary Jo Shively, and Jean Smart as office manager Charlene Frazier. In the third season, Meshach Taylor was given a starring role for his previously recurring character of delivery man and later partner, Anthony Bouvier. Later in its run, the series gained notoriety for its well-publicized behind-the-scenes conflicts and cast changes. Julia Duffy and Jan Hooks replaced Burke and Smart for season six. Duffy was not brought back for the seventh and final season. She was replaced by Judith Ivey. So that really, I can't encapsulate it any better than that. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah, we know I couldn't have done it any less than that. The series ran on Monday nights, and CBS always had a pretty solid Monday night lineup. And I was very surprised when I looked at the Nielsen ratings, because CBS already was doing okay with Scarecrow and Mrs. King, plus Kate Nally and Newhart. And then in 1986, when Designing Women premiered, uh, I think My Sister Sam was also a new show. So now we had this Kate and Allie, Designing Women, My Sister Sam, Newhart block of comedies. And it came in at number 33, Designing Women. So just outside of the top 30. Season two, same lineup. We also added Frank's Place, the Tim Reed show. That's the show for which Bea Richards won one of her Emmys. It was at 34, season three. It was number 33, but season three is notable, 1988 to 89. That was the premiere of Murphy Brown. 
and Murphy Brown was going to be huge. That first season, it was popular, but you see the difference very quickly. Season four, Designing Women jumps up to number 22. First time it's placed in the top 30 because the Murphy Brown Designing Women block was a solid hour of comedy. It was really, really fun. Season five, it went up again. It broke the top 10. It came in at number 10, but that's season five, probably partially driven by all the conflict with Delta Burke and all the publicity it was getting. Even negative publicity is good publicity. And to my great shock, season six, which is the Julia Duffy season, that was its best season. It came in at number six. I, I, I give that completely to people wanting to see how it worked, people wanting to see Julia Duffy again. True. I think. Because um, remember, it was she was on Newhart, so they were used to seeing her on Monday nights. Mm -hmm. And think, people wanted to see her again. And I think by that time, Murphy Brown had hit its stride. And also, Murphy Brown was controversial. The stuff going on with Delta Burke, which actually started in season, like, two. But yeah. Oh, the Dan Quayle thing. The Murphy Brown. The Dan Quayle thing had happened. Yeah. But then, sadly, tragedy struck. In addition to Julia Duffy not being invited back. And honestly, I didn't enjoy her character. She was really annoying that character of Julia and Suzanne's cousin who just sweeps in and buys into the business. Then at season seven, so 92 to 93, this is where Evening Shade had already premiered two seasons prior. Evening Shade is, of course, the Burt Reynolds, Mary Lou Henner series. Oof. Yeah, oof, indeed. And then in 92, 93, two additional series premiered hearts of fire don't 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 why do i want to say marky post your marky post and your favorite john ritter oh, God. oh shit i was gonna say dick van patten no <laughs> so hearts of fire i think was another linda bloodworth thomason she also did designing women and then love and war also premiered love and war was the j thomas susan day romantic comedy from Diane English, the creator of Murphy Brown. So for some reason, the Linda Bloodworth Thomason show that started it all, Designing Women, was booted from Monday nights. So Monday nights became Murphy Brown, Love and War, Evening Shade, Hearts of Fire. And sadly, Designing Women was relegated to Friday nights which they paired up with the new big get that CBS had just acquired, the Golden Palace. Oof. And they put it together with Major Dad and the next Bob Newhart show after Newhart, which was just called Bob, and it did not succeed. In theory, it makes sense, though, doesn't it? In theory, I mean, you know, the Golden Girls audience is going to stick around for designing women. So, yeah, uh, if the Golden Girls audience tunes in on a Friday night as opposed yeah. to a Saturday night. And it's it's amazing. We've talked about this before. Moving Murder, She Wrote to Thursday night. That was the death of that show. And you're like, but old people watch TV more than Sunday night. And it's not like they were pulling any of the audience away from friends and must see TV. Why did it fail? Why didn't the audience follow it? 
to Thursday. And similarly, having had its most successful season to date, why wouldn't Designing Women audiences have followed it to Friday night? Uh, I don't know. Preachers of habit. Yeah, that's what it must be. That's why we've said programming and time slots are so or were so important back in the day, back in the time of network television. So you know what I love to cover next? What else was on the same night? Mm. Now, this was actually on January 1st of 1990. They knew this was coming up and it coincided with New Year's night, I guess, not New Year's Eve. So on ABC, so this information coming from our, our non-affiliated website called tvtango.com, but it always has listings of what's on network television. It doesn't have anything listed for ABC, but I did look back typically on ABC on a Monday night, it would be MacGyver at 8 p.m. and then Monday Night Football at 9 p.m. So the men were watching... ABC. Yep. Not the women's audience, not the gay audience. No. no. On NBC this same night, the Orange Bowl was playing. But typically on NBC, ALF would have been on at 8 p.m. And 8.30 p.m. would have been Valerie or the Hogan family. And then at 9 p.m. they would show some type of movie. NBC, Monday night at the movies or the big event or whatever they called it. On Fox this same night, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. We had Fox. This was 1990. 8 p.m. was 21 Jump Street with our wonderful friend Richard Grieco, whom we were just discussing from the Facts of Life. And at 9 p.m., Alien Nation, the series. Both of those, though, were repeats that night. Oh, Alien Nation, shoot me in the face. (laughs) God, I was like, what in the fuck? Who greenlight this? (laughs) <laughs> did you see the movie the movie wasn't bad no it was fascinating no <laughs> no they drank spoiled milk when they had the carton of milk and poured it and it came out in lumps and they were like yes that was what they got drunk on sour milk was like alcohol to the aliens <sighs> and so you'd watch them pour it and of course you're like <laughs> And on CBS this same night at 8 p.m., I think they shifted things around to give Designing Women this hour. But there was a new Major Dad on at 8 p.m. 8.30 p.m. was a new Murphy Brown. 9 p.m. was this. And then at 10 was Newhart. And then at 10.30 was Dr. Doctor. Mm. Remember this series? Remember? Mm, No. Dr. Doctor. It was Matt Frewer, better known as Max Headroom. Uh, Not as Max Headroom in the series, but the actor Matt Frewer, who played Max Headroom as a zany doctor. The zany madcap series that I don't think lasted more than a half a season or one season or whatever. Both parts of this were written by Linda Bloodworth Thomason, who actually created the series. And both episodes are directed by Harry Thomason, who is the husband of Linda Bloodworth Thomason who are the co-executive producers, showrunners. They are the basically the creative voice of the entire series. And, uh, yeah. What else do we want to talk about here? You want to talk about this episode? We could, but I can see by the look in your face. I know. I know what you want, what you want to hear, Matthew. Oh, God. How old the ladies were? Yes! Uh, <laughs> 
I'll mm. make it very fast. We're not going to talk about the characters or the actresses. They're all famous, all of them. Uh, Dixie Carter is 50. Annie Potts is 37. Delta Burke is 33. Gene Smart is 38. Meshack Taylor is 42. I think they were playing him younger than that. Uh, and Alice Ghostly as Bernice was 66. Alice Ghostly was a later addition to the series because they were like, we don't have a Sophia. We don't have a dotty, crazy old lady character. So let's add Bernice into the mix. Delta Burke was 33. 33. That crazy? She's amazing. She is. I mean. She's this... the most beautiful woman on the planet. Uh, agreed. Good. God, she is gorgeous. And. There's my autograph picture. You have an autograph picture of her. Did you meet her? She was a dear friend. I was Delta's lighting double during the TV sitcom Delta. Oh, <laughs> and you had the blonde hair and it was about the same type of a do, wasn't it? We were about the same measurements, so at the time. <laughs> so, How old do you think Dolly is here? Okay. She's 76 now. This what? was 32 years ago. So she is... I can't do math. 43. 43? She mm -hmm. is 43. She would be 44 in 1990. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bea Richards, the whole reason why we're here, because Bea Richards, who plays Miss Minnie, the elderly African-American woman at the hospital, she was Jeff's grandmother on The Facts of Life, season nine, present imperfect when she gave Tootie the ugly-ass pendant that Tootie damaged and lost. So even though she's playing 102 years old, how old do you think Bea Richards is? Oh, this is 90. She just died at 103. So, um... <clears throat> Once again, Matthew, you're not doing the math. Let's be real. No, I have no idea. She's 69. Okay, well... This is only I'll... two years, not even two years after her appearance on The Facts of Life, where she plays a fairly spry older woman as Jeff's grandmother. The other character of note is uh, the character of Vanessa. Anthony in this episode has a blind date with a woman who turns out to be basically batshit crazy. The actress is Olivia Brown. She has just come off of 111 episodes of Miami Vice as oh. Detective Trudy Joplin. And I'm like, I didn't even know there was a woman on Miami Vice. <laughs> Neither. That's so crazy. But so I guess she was a cop on Miami Vice and 111 episodes. That sounds like the bulk of the series. And she would go on to be in three more episodes of Designing Women as Vanessa. This is not the last time she's with them, which is no. also weird. He eventually started dating and probably married Cheryl Lee Ralph. Is that what happened? Yeah. Wow. I don't remember that. I'm... I'm I'm going to say it. Maybe it's just because of his performance in the Mannequin movies. I always had difficulty seeing him as straight. He was always oh. a little fussy. But, well, case in point, he's got this blind date, this bitch who is hot to trot. Now, granted, I'm sure he doesn't want to catch any number of STIs or hepatitis from her. But 
she is hot to trot and he's kind of like, oh, uh, yeah, no. She's like, hey, what a nice couch. You want to have sex on it? And he's like, um, no, no. I mean, yeah, it's his friend's house. He's trying to be polite, but <laughs> there is a, a little sense of, okay, why? What's not to be into with this woman? How she acts. I mean, Anthony's not really a player, but she was she was ready for him to to do some stuff and he could have but anyway okay okay and last thing i have to say about olivia brown the actress who plays vanessa her husband in real life is michael t williamson michael t williamson is an actor probably best known for playing bubba in forest gump i thought that was amazing i was like no way bubba and of course we're reminded of things like that, because at Universal City Walk, right here in Orlando, we've got the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company restaurant. I thought you were going to say Bubba from the Police Academy movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which one was Bubba in that? Wasn't he Bubba Smith? Oh, I don't the, know. The, the football player? He played Hightower. Hightower. Oh, Hightower. Okay. Yeah, Hi. no, no. Not him. Nope. Different, different actor, yes. And uh, uh, let's see, the one of the attendants, the, the two guys who bring in the gurney to take Bernice away at the end of the first half, just of note, one of them, attendant number two is how he's billed. Connor O'Farrell is his name. He has 99 credits in a 30-year career. He is still working. He's been in every single TV show. I can't remember ever seeing him in anything, and yet he has been in everything. Mm. Bravo to him. So, ready to get to talking about the show show. Let's do it. I don't have very many notes about it, to be honest, mm -hmm. just because it's such a brilliant episode. Well, these are clearly the syndicated versions. First of all, the, the resolution is very low. Did you notice? Like, on a big screen yeah. TV, this looks like a fucking video game from the 80s. Like, it's like, okay, this is not a 4K transfer. And they are definitely edited down. They're only like 21 minutes and some change. Like they're they're shorter in length than the Facts of Life reruns. So there is some stuff missing. I did pull up the transcript at subslikescripts.com. And it looks like it's just nips and tucks, little bits and pieces here and there. I didn't find anything majorly of note, but uh, let's go. Let's get start talking about the episode. You want to just give a loose synopsis? You want to just... Well, the TV Guide version is Suzanne wants to win a car. Yes, she does. Yeah. And the contest over the radio is that you will win a car if yours is the first baby born after midnight on New Year's Eve. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> but it gives Suzanne something so funny to play with and do. <laughs> so self-absorbed. I love her. Every single pregnant woman at the hospital they wheel by, she's like, how dilated is she? She's going to give birth to twins. She's going to win two cars. And I need that car for Consuela. She is her. I love the Delta Burke cadence and that pacing. I love, love Delta Burke in this series. And I think another thing that really did hurt it, like you said, people went in to see how the new show was going to be. And I think... It was a really bad double blow to lose both Gene Smart and Delta Burke. 
Yeah. That was that was a one-two punch. If they had just lost Delta and could have adjusted one replacement at a time, that would have helped. But instead, we got Jan Hooks as Charlene's sister, Carlene, and she was just like a pale carbon copy and just as ditzy and stupid. And also going on in this is it's New Year's Eve. Charlene goes into labor. And they have to get to the hospital. Well, there's also a snowstorm. Oh, no. It's so difficult to get there now. And Anthony has a New Year's date. And this woman is batshit crazy. Yeah. To the point where they, it's like we need a laugh. Just have her come running in and go to the nurse and say, hey, you got any Demerol? Yeah. Uh, it was so non sequitur. And they had a theme of I'll Be Seeing You, the song, throughout, which is uh, an interesting choice, I guess. I'm not sure how that applies to welcoming a new life into the world. I think it was more about how her family is always there watching. Dolly spends 20 minutes Mm -hmm. letting us know when, when... When you fart, they're yeah. watching. Yeah. When you masturbate, they're watching. <laughs> when you and it's like, oh, okay, Grandma, I love you, but yeah. close your eyes for a minute. <laughs> yeah. When she takes her first steps, when she poops her first diaper, yeah. When she first tells you you are a fucked up bitch and she fucking hates you. Oh my God, David! <laughs> Every teenager does that to their parents. Come on, uh, yeah. So talk about Dolly. We got it. We can't. This was a big get because Dolly was the guest star, the celebrity guest star of this. Had Charlene previously been known to be a Dolly fan? Or was this like a Tootie and Michael Jackson thing where it just popped in once or twice when they needed it? I mean, who else is she going to worship? True. She's a big chested blonde from the South. True. But just another chance for Dolly Parton to be lit like an angel. Mm-hmm. Oh, and now she, I know she says she's not an angel. She's a guardian movie star. But just all that white light and all the the, the shading and the, oh, my God, Dolly. Yeah. Lit to filth and looks gorgeous. I mean, this is variety show Dolly. This is when she I think this is when she was her skinniest. So at her skinniest, she's also her most buxom. So she just is, God, striking. And and the hair and the wig with the big, long cascading curls and the the white sequins and rhinestones and yeah. So does any women like to do these sort of dream sequences, fantasy sequences? And they're another one of the things in the show where I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not sure these are as as effective as they thought they were. Did they? Well, this one here, of course, because it's the Dolly one. But do you think it really bought them anything? The whole scene of them all as the babies in the playpen in the crib in the second half? No, not at all. And losing the car and stuff. That to me just was like packing peanuts to fill out the time. Yeah, that was completely unnecessary. Yeah. Yep. And racist. How was it racist? Or was it? Well, one of those were like, you think for a moment it's racist? 
when Anthony, they, they, when they reference that Anthony is another one of the babies in the crib, they do reference, yeah, and he's different and not like us. I saw when they changed his diaper. It's like, oh, okay, he's because he's a boy. That's what they're talking about. I, I was, <laughs> my hackles were raised, and I was like, oh God, don't go there. <laughs> but anyway, Jean Smart was really pregnant. Was she really? I was going to ask yeah. that, and I meant to figure that out. So she really was. Yeah. Her son Connor was born October twenty fifth, nineteen eighty nine. So she was very pregnant here then. Yeah. And wow. she has five Emmys. And after that scene with Dolly, I just, I was like, God damn it, Jean Smart. Ugh, we don't deserve her. Mm -hmm. She's and so good. Yeah, she is. She is amazing. Like you say, we don't deserve her. And because of Julia being the sort of focal character in the show and because of Delta Burke being the breakout star and so funny, their, their characters were so much bigger and more center stage, as it were. I feel like Jean Smart didn't necessarily get her due or get the attention she deserved for her time on the series. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Yeah. Because she was so natural and so good, it didn't look like she was acting like Rain Wilson in The Office. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I would expect that's how Rain Wilson is. Mm -hmm. And Blanche and the Golden Girls, hearing her without a Southern accent is weird. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, she's so natural and so good as Charlene. But, mm -hmm. oh, God, she's good and gorgeous. God love Truly her. Truly gorgeous. Oh, and uh, uh, just another point of interest as I'm talking about Dixie Carter and Delta Berg, this is not the first series where they played sisters. Right. We have referenced before the short-lived half-season show called Filthy Rich, which was a Linda Bloodworth Thomason show. So it was an attempt before this that just didn't take. And that's one I got to find. I'm sure those are on YouTube. I got to find that show. In my mind, that was a fucking hilarious show. Now I'm thinking I was nine or 10 years old at the time. So I could be wrong, but definitely the two of them playing bitchy Southern sisters, that was genius casting. They really are good. And the chemistry between all of the actresses is really, really excellent, I think. It's just the writing where I think sometimes it gets a little sweaty and sometimes is working a little too hard to kind of bring the 80s sitcom back to the 1970s model of we can be dramatic we can tug at your heartstrings we can have all these different types of moments and ugh, there are times i'm not sure i can feel honesty in these moments on designing women on designing women i feel i feel like it might be a little pandering and that's my thing when we get to talking about bia richards i'm a little bit like ugh. i i loved what she had to say her performance was great i cannot confirm or deny whether i might have been trying to keep from sobbing while i was on the elliptical at the gym in public while her scene was going on well let's get to the end of the episode when we're kind of wrapping it up i'll talk more about that my favorite thing about the first episode was all the 80s tech. 
that happened. Oh my God. Yes. Watching Mary Jo have to keep putting quarters into the phone and <laughs> you know how he's oh, the parents are sitting by the phone and thinking now this would all be done on FaceTime. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, She'd be having, oh, look, look, you can see the, the baby's head sticking out. Just put the camera down there. Yeah. So I guess wrapping up the first half, what happens? I don't know if we have anything else to discuss here. You tell me. It's really the setup of Charlene going into labor, getting to the hospital, Anthony having his crazy date. And because of, oh, Charlene's in labor, he brings Vanessa the date to the hospital and she acts crazy. She's got a boombox with her for some reason. And she's got her headphones plugged into it. And she's just dancing in the middle of the of the waiting room. Just just batshit. Later she just comes in wheeling in an oxygen tank. Like, hey, look what I found. Yeah. They, they were really, I felt to me that felt very sweaty in the writing as far as they were working so hard for we just need to have something funny happen here. And she's crazy. Have her do something crazy. Yeah. Um, and I should say the Dolly dream sequence happens before Charlene goes into labor and Dolly does tell her your baby's going to be coming tomorrow and it's going to be a girl. So she knows it's going to be Olivia because the moment Charlene doesn't know sex, the baby. Right. So, you know what I think would be a fun thing to do? Those people who have too much time on their hands and make those YouTube compilations, there needs to be a mega mix of every time Julia Sugarbaker says, Suzanne. I think it kind of became uh, not, uh, not a cat phrase but because of how many different ways she would say it depending on the situation because mm -hmm. <clears throat> there were a lot of suzanne and a lot of suzanne yeah there was a lot of um different ways she could deliver it depending on the situation and she always nailed it yeah and suzanne had a catchphrase suzanne's is in this episode it's in this episode excuse me excuse <laughs> me Oh, I have used that so many times. Oh, it makes me so happy. Every time I have to say excuse me, I think it runs through my head. Excuse me! Excuse me! <laughs> I love so, that woman so much. Yeah. It's kind of one of those, like, you know, in hindsight, like, three's company. It's like, guys, look, looking back through your 2020 hindsight lenses, whatever the fuck Suzanne Summers wanted, you should have just fucking given it to her. Yeah. And with this, it should have been like, guys, whatever Delta wanted, the show was better with her. Unquestionably, it suffered when yeah. she left. So, and then the actual half of the episode, the halfway point, I guess, where part one ends, is where Bernice is at home drinking by herself. I guess she had a date that stood her up. And there's a running joke of her with the Christmas tree skirt is... She's wearing it like a skirt skirt. Isn't that wacky, you wacky old lady? <laughs> Played by Aunt Esmeralda from Bewitched. And then, uh, yeah, Bernice calls an ambulance to take her to the hospital, which yeah. is so terrible. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much where it ends. It's like the baby's not here and we don't know what's going to happen. So part two begins back in the hospital. Again, talk between Mary Jo and Charlene about natural childbirth. But that was the time period, wasn't it, to make fun of natural childbirth and things like that. And 
make fun of like the Golden Girls making fun of the workouts that people would do and how people would dress for working out and yeah, you know, the facts of life. Oh, a tofu burger. Yeah. You know, like what is hummus? Ooh, it's yeah. weird. It tastes Ooh. like something I should plant in my garden. In. <laughs> God, I miss our Charlotte Ray years. Those were fun. Good times. So while she does decide to take the drugs, not to be brave about it, and even Mary Jo's like, bitch, I ain't going to judge you. Take the fucking drugs if this is this, this is difficult for you. So then while she's kind of loopy, the nurse does say to Mary Jo, are you family? And uh, this is where the Dolly stuff starts coming back in, where Charlene starts saying, no, she's not family, but... My family's all here. They're all watching over me. And my baby's going to be a girl. Dolly told me. And they're like, whoa, she is so fucked up on those drugs. What is the craziness she's talking about? So this is the point where Julia happens by a room. A room with Bea Richards in it. An elderly African-American woman. The nurse says that she, thank you, nurse exposition. We appreciate this, that she loves company. Go right on in. She's been here the past three weeks. She's 102 years old. She has congestive heart failure. She should already be dead. But she asked to be near maternity because of all the life and having the babies nearby. Yeah, this is clearly pre-HIPAA. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> because they have no problem telling <laughs> telling everybody. Mrs. Hacker just had her twins. She yeah. was dilated at 14 centimeters. <laughs> yes. Everybody. Yeah. There is a point where Suzanne does when another one is wheeled up. It's like, you know, these they're basically leaving the rooms into the delivery room. And Suzanne's like, another one. Damn it. I'm going to lose that car. And by the way, she needs the car for Consuela, whom we never meet. Right. Right, we never see Consuela. Her maid, Consu Consuela, is the way she says it. Four syllables, Consuela. And yeah, she needs a car for Consuela. She can't afford it. Consuela needs a car, and I can't afford to buy it for myself. So every patient comes by, she's like, what? Who's that? She's going to have her baby first. She runs over, and she says, I think this is the, excuse me, excuse me. She's, Can you tell me how dilated she is? And thankfully, the nurse says, um, actually, no, I can't. Ma'am, you need to sit down. And I was very happy to hear that. I don't think it was a no, I can't, because that's her privacy. I think it was a no, I can't. I haven't looked. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Look for yourself, lady. Uh, less. But BS sets, I love, and you're absolutely right. It's so performative, but effective nonetheless. Like she walks in, my name is Minnie. I don't need your phone name. Okay. Yeah, who does that? But she said she was born in 1887. And David, she was 13 in 1900. Yeah. 13 years old in 1900. Mm -hmm. She was 50 when The Wizard of Oz came out. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. That puts it in the context. Holy shit. Who's the oldest person you ever met? I ever met. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, my dad's mother, was born in 1889. And she died at, I think she was 100, 
she died in 91 when she was 100 and was going to be 101. So, yeah. Don't you wish that you had kind of talked to her more about, like, stuff? On one hand, yes, but remember, she was an immigrant from Portugal and she didn't speak English. And this is the weird thing. She was 84 when I was born, when my parents went and picked me up from the pound. In 1968, she was 84 years old. So uh, that's that's the other thing. The numbers may not match, but she was already elderly and sickly when I was when I was an infant. And therefore, you know, there there was with the language barrier, the bonding is tough. My piano teacher was 88 when I started going to her. Holy fuck. She was born in 1900. And I remember as a kid thinking, okay, she was almost 40 when The Wizard of Oz came out, when Gone with the Wind came out. And I did get to talk to her a little bit. She used to be a school teacher. And she would, because it was Fort Wayne, um, African-Americans weren't allowed to go to school. And she would have in her house, she would invite all the black kids to her house in the evenings. And in secret, she would teach them like what she was teaching during the day to them. She's she's one of those people that like, if you're like, if there's a heaven, Helen Parker is going there. But that doesn't mean she didn't sit by the piano while I was practicing and fart. You know, I mean... (laughs) It's always like you're trying to you're sure you're farting in front of a 10-year-old boy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but this via Richards thing, it is like you say, performative is a great way to 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 describe it because it is so textbook. What are things or important things for an elderly African American person? Uh there's a trope, Matthew, and I looked it up. One person describes it as M-A-A-F. M-A-A-F. I don't know if it's actually pronounced MAF, but it stands for Magical African American Friends. Okay. There's another term that Spike Lee coined in 2001. And it's it contains a word that is a controversial word that I, as a white person, probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it, and I'm only going to say it once. You're allowed to quote Spike Lee. I'm allowed to quote Spike Lee, and Spike Lee called this trope the magical Negro. And what this trope is, is the sort of tried and true formula of the African-American person who, if not containing magic, like, say, an Uncle Remus in Song of the South, but the person who bestows some wisdom or learning onto the white people and makes them better. Yeah. And and happily does so because you know all the things that white people have done for black people through history, you know, pay it back. So uh this to me felt a lot like that. Oh oh Spike Lee's particular beef was the legend of Bagger Vance, which came out in 2000. He said, they are literally lynching black people left and right in this movie. And Bagger Vance is more concerned with helping Matt Damon with his fucking golf swing. 
Yeah. That's the perfect example of this, where it's the thing of the African-American person happily, joyfully helping the white people, either through help or wisdom, or in this case, storytelling. Yeah. Driving Miss Daisy doesn't have the impact if Hoke is played by a white guy. No, no, definitely not. There's a million of them. Yeah. No, there is. There's there's a ton of them. It is a trope. And uh, I, I that did come to mind as this was happening because Bea Richards crushes it in the delivery and, and delivering it as though she's 102. Good God. But uh, the fact that we had that, the sort of what I saw as kind of tropey and unfortunately a trope that involves race relations. And then after that, when we get to the point where as she's going through her history, which is uh, her father was a minister who started the first black Baptist church. Her husband died during the depression. I had a daughter who was a school teacher. My nephew worked for Martin Luther King. One of her sons died in the war. Another daughter started a black library in Mississippi. It's like, good Lord, lady. I mean, that's amazing and terrific. But by the same token, to suddenly at this point, we're in the second half of this two-part episode to have it suddenly be a history of the struggles of African-American people. And then to think that they're tying this all in together when Anthony in response to her going through all this says, wow, you know, Miss Minnie, you are the 20th century. And she comes back and says, I'm just a little thread, a thread in the tapestry. Nothing wrong or bad inherently with this. But I have to say, I feel like this episode overall thematically doesn't all quite fall in together as neatly and cleanly as it thinks it is. Where you've got the Dolly Parton cul-de-sac dream sequence in the first half. And then you've got Suzanne and the car thing. And you've got Anthony and his crazy date. And now suddenly this is where we're going to tug at their heartstrings. And then, sorry, spoiler alert, Miss Minnie passes away with all of them there saying beautiful things about hoping to see the world go toward freedom, everybody learning to live together in peace, and then quoting, we ain't what we should be. We ain't what we gonna be. At least we ain't what we was. As she flatlines. And who was a blubbering idiot? It's me. Me too. I'm the problem. It's me. Uh, well that's it like i said i'm on the elliptical at the gym watching this trying not to (laughs) be a fucking blubbering mess oh my god no it's so worked in bia richards this should have been another emmy nomination i'm sorry this was lovely so too i thought so too but getting back to my my bigger point this is kind of where i wanted to end up with my opinions on this episode it is really very thematically disassociated right down to when miss minnie dies and they're all just staring at her and then the super emotional music kicks in and suddenly you realize wait what i know this song it's somewhere out there from an american tale Mm -hmm. what 
uh, okay, help me. How does that song connect somewhere out there is about there's somebody I love and that I'm missing and we're not together, but we're still thinking about each other. Mm -hmm. I not until the moment when we finally see Bill in the plane getting the news of the birth of the daughter that it is Olivia. Dolly was right because Dolly is an angel and Dolly's fucking God. That was the only moment where I went, okay, this song kind of applies here a little just because Bill is not there. But I'm like, I, I don't, I don't think this was the right song choice which I thought to myself through my fucking tears because it totally worked on me. Yeah. But do you get what I'm saying? Or am I the asshole? Yeah. I mean, regarding this show, not in general. Oh, 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 well, you know, opinions are like buttholes. Mine's the only one that's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to what you said at the beginning, this is, I think, in many ways... A quintessential, a definitive episode. If you wanted to say to somebody, if you only watch one episode of Designing Women, this it's it, the schmaltz factor is a little heavier than normal, but it does have pretty much all the elements there. I love that. You have yeah. no critiques. I mean, no, mm -mm, no, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, made me happy. Speaking of HIPAA and hospital practices, during the Somewhere Out There, which now becomes a montage while the song is playing. And it's the Linda Ronstadt, James Ingram arrangement, but not them singing, because right. you pay so much less money if you record your own version when you put it on a TV show. The rights are tens of thousands of dollars cheaper. I'm wondering if that is the reason it's not on um, Amazon. Oh, Amazon Prime doesn't have it. Yeah. But Hulu does. That is interesting. Yeah. And then the final image of the episode is the long white hallway mm. and Dolly in her long white sequin dress <laughs> ushering Bea Richards in her white hospital gown basically to heaven. So she is an angel. She says she's not an angel. She's an angel. Wow. Isn't and she though? I know she is. She's a national treasure. <laughs> and I, Matthew, you know, I'd rather walk in my lips than criticize anything about a TV show. Sure. Even that final image bothered me directorially <laughs> because Dolly takes her down the hallway. There's a big door at the end. It kind of looks like a, an elevator door. Like it's supposed to be sort of, yeah. is it hospital? Is it heaven? Where are we? It's ambiguous. But she takes Bea down the hallway sort of to the end, and then they sort of hold hands. They hold both hands, and then Dolly lets go and turns and goes off through a side door, and Bea is left there alone, and Bea just kind of looks around and then turns kind of towards the camera, so we see it is her, and then they just dissolve to the empty hallway, so she just fades. And I'm like, why didn't they both disappear? Well, why did why did Dolly have to leave through a door? Well, my thing is, if Dolly is the angel, if Dolly is the usher, we had that door at the end of the hallway. Why didn't that door open up with the expected bright light of the afterlife? And why didn't Dolly usher Bia into that and escort her into it? You know, Bia could have turned around to her 
and then looked into the light because she even said, I'm looking forward to seeing my family again. And then as the light closes, then Dolly could go off to the side. <clears throat> Why did she not go through a door to the afterlife when there was a door there? Why did she just, uh, you know, well, all right, sweetie. All right, you're dead now. Just going to usher you down this hallway. Just going to stand here and you're just going to disappear. All right, and you're going to be somewhere else. Okay, bye. Love you, sweetie. The doors were there. Why didn't you use them? The heavenly gates, the symbolism. I don't get it. You didn't have to pay for another set piece. You just put light back there. It just would have been bright, blinding light. The... Anyway. Why did you hate this episode so much, David? That's just it. I... This is my problem. This is the this is the curse of living inside my head, where I do this when I watch TV shows and I rip it to shreds. But I'm with you. I also kind of loved it, and I totally was cry. If I had not been in public during that last scene with her going ahead, I would have been sobbing. It would have gotten me, even though I would have been like, "God damn it, they should have." <laughs> Five stars from me, David. Five five talkaholic chips. Yeah, that. Yeah. So, um, I I think I'm going to give it. I've 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 said too many critical things. I cannot give it five. And designing women as a whole, like I've said, it's not as good a series as I remembered it. I'm giving it four and a half pink triangles. Giving it a half point deduction. All right. Bert's fair. Yeah. This has been fun. It has been. I've enjoyed, like I said, for how critical I am, for how much I know I just ripped this show to shreds. I have fond memories. When you say Designing Women, I think, oh, that show, yeah, fun. So, yeah, it was fun to look at it with a critical eye, to get to obsess over it. You know, regardless of the outcome, the obsessing is always fun. Totally. Yeah. So that wraps up another TV Talkaholics. Matthew, it has been a delight, as always. Hasn't it? <laughs> so to you 2D Fruities, thank you so much for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. And we cannot wait to bring you another installment next month. Until then, mwah! Goodbye! Georgia! Georgia! You should see my behind. It's a real peach. <laughs> oh, so. Uh, no, more about gel coat. When the fourth. Don't you call in the. More importantly, 